1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Robert Childs about his examination of the presidential campaign of Al Smith, entitled The Revolution of 28, Al Smith, American Progressivism, and the Coming of the New Deal. Rob, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Mark. Well, thanks for agreeing to speak with us about your book. I was wondering if you could start us off, though, before we get to the book, by telling us a little bit about yourself.
2: Well, sure. Um, I actually came to history in a sort of roundabout way. Uh, as an undergrad, I was going to be a music teacher. I was Actually, my undergrad degree is in music. Um, but along the way, I sort of remembered my childhood love for history, taking a few really good classes, um, decided to pursue a master's in history and sort of just uh, fell in love with it and kept going. Uh, and now I'm a... Uh, now I'm a historian,
1: <laughs> and you've chosen political history instead of, say, uh, music history or cultural history. It's a it's a very interesting choice. What led you to political history as a uh, area of interest?
0: Well,
2: I always think uh, political history, especially these days, gets kind of a bad rap. Um, people think of it as sort of top heavy and and top down and old fashioned, and in fact, I think it's uh, precisely the opposite. I, my what I like about political history is that if it's done well, um, it's a very holistic view of American life. And I do U.S. political history. Um, If you're going to understand politics, what is politics but the way that institutions and parties and whatever you want to call the system uh, tries to interact with all the many diverse things going on in a society at any given time. So if you're going to do good political history, you also have to uh, master cultural and economic and social and technological uh, and all the other kinds of histories that are going on. Um, and so I I kind of take a much broader view of it, and to me that's, that's a nice way to uh, look at the society more, as I said, more holistically.
1: And I was thinking your book is a good reflection of that approach because while – Al Smith is at center stage throughout your book. You're not just talking about it as Al Smith as a politician, Al Smith as a uh, governor, but you also talk about the voters and how they responded and, and, and their engagement with it. So you're not just doing top down, you're also doing bottom up and showing the interplay between the two.
2: Yeah, well, I'm glad that uh, you felt that way. That, that was really my goal, um, especially uh, in trying to understand why voters um, responded to Smith the way that I argue they did. You really have to understand their lives and their suffering and their pain and their, what they, their hopes and dreams and so forth. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad that that came through in the book.
1: What led you to focus on Al Smith and his 1928 presidential campaign in particular as a book subject?
2: Well, it's actually a really, um, I think it's kind of a funny story. I'm from Baltimore, uh, but my wife is from Long Island. And when we were dating, we would go up to visit her father, and I saw all these things named after Robert Moses, and I wanted to find out who in the heck Robert Moses was. So, of course, I read The Power Broker uh, <laughs> by uh, Robert Caro, and 2,000 pages later, I was very aware of who Robert Moses was, but also, um, in the early chapters, of course, those who are listening who know Robert Moses know his early career is very much uh, wrapped up with Al Smith's governorship. And so I became fascinated with this character, Al Smith, who I had a sort of noticed along the way once in a while in high school history and so forth, but never felt satisfied. I knew enough about him. And so for my first grad research paper, I started looking into Al Smith's governorship and I became, I guess you could say uh, fascinated consumed uh, by his reforms and the complexity of what he was doing. And next thing you know, there's a dissertation and uh, beyond that a book. So that's, that's how I got into this.
1: Hmm. You, I mean, Al Smith is is a figure who is, if, you know, to the degree he's known today, is typically known as he was the first uh, Catholic nominated uh, for a uh, major uh, political party, this was being in 1928, and that this has shaped a lot of our understanding of him. And yet, when you start your book, you point out the degree to which that really is a misunderstanding of Al Smith, his campaign, and, and his legacy to American history.
2: Well, I think that's right. I mean, on the one hand, there's absolutely no denying the profound importance of the fact that he was a Catholic and that he was the first Catholic running. And that definitely uh, shaped uh, much of the campaign and of his career. And it is an important uh, part of his legacy and and something that's honorable. The way in which he handled that in public life and some of the terrible things that uh, were said about him as a result of that. It's all very important. And so, to to a certain extent, uh, the 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 mythology around him uh, is grounded in fact. But the problem is that it tends to distract us from the very serious policy initiatives that he enacted as governor. Uh, and that he championed as a presidential candidate, and that were, I would argue, the other half of his very real appeal to millions of Americans who were, yes, ethnically and religiously marginalized, but also uh, economically suffering in the 1920s. Um, And so while the religious question is fundamentally important, it's not the whole story. And so I've tried to correct that in in this book.
1: You... Begin the book by talking about how Smith came to his progressive politics. And I was wondering if you could elaborate upon how it was he goes from, you know, this his childhood, this early involvement with uh, Tammany Hall in the uh, at the beginning of the 20th century to becoming a, a champion of a series of reforms that you wouldn't necessarily associate with of someone with his, you know, early background in politics.
2: It is to me... Um a very important part of this story because, first of all, it shows the the profound significance of um, women from, especially the settlement house tradition, but in general, the sort of progressive women that are only in the last generation or so getting the kind of credit they deserve for being so central to progressivism in the late 19th and early 20th century in this country. Um, and this was certainly the case for Smith. Um, he had been kind of, to put it I guess bluntly uh, as a a legislator early on he was kind of a party hack. I mean he was sent there by Tammany because he played by the rules um, and he didn't give a single speech in his first um, term as a state legislator. Uh, However, uh, he was tenacious and he tried to learn about how state government worked and so right away um, he uh, became sort of a self-taught expert on the mechanics of state government, and that later on allowed him to be uh, a progressive reformer when it came to sort of technocratic reforms. But more important than that was his interaction, as I said, with uh, progressive settlement house and social reform women, uh, women from the labor movement, women from settlement houses and so forth, who, especially in the wake of the horrendous Triangle fire in March of 1911, um, and... You know, the state started doing all these investigations and Smith and his best friend, uh, senator, state senator at the time, Robert Wagner, were leading the investigations. They called in these experts and the experts on factory conditions in New York tended to be women from that tradition. And so they start to uh, educate uh, these women these women start to educate Smith and Wagner and and really teach them about the real horrors going on in, in factory life and in New York State and around the country in the early 20th century. And through that interaction, they became even more um, interested in a broader, not just labor reforms, but social welfare reforms in general. And um, this helped people like Smith and Wagner and others, but especially Smith, It helped them to understand that um, they could use the power they had accumulated through Tammany Hall and through sort of old school partisan politics. They could use that power uh, not just to stay in power and win elections, but also to help people from impoverished backgrounds like, like Smith had grown up. And I mean, he grew up poor. His father died when he was in uh, eighth grade and he had to drop out of school and work 12-hour days. And it's a really inspiring story. But what he realized as a politician was he could use his power in the government uh, to make life easier for people from his neighborhood, from that background. And so that was sort of his odyssey, especially in the 1910s. And it culminated with his election to governor of the Empire State in 1918.
1: One of the things you you, uh, delve into when you're talking about that Process, though, that I thought was especially interesting was the degree to which it was not just these settlement house workers like uh, Lillian Weld and and Francis Perkins who are uh, educating Al Smith, but that he is also, in a sense, helping to uh, show them how to in a, how to achieve their goals within the existing political process. I, I was thinking in particular, uh, just one example, of when he has that conversation with Frances Perkins, and she's explaining how she is an independent, and he's saying to her, well, if you want to get something done – you have to, you know, you have to, you know, join join a party and, you know, work through that. And that, you know, begins this process of Francis Perkins eventually becoming Secretary of Labor in the 1930s and and, and establishing not just a, the statewide legacy that she does, thanks to her connection with Al Smith, but her national legacy later on.
2: Oh, absolutely. And, and I'm glad that you picked up on and brought up that point, because um, it's, it's really that conversation and the relationship that that was built between Smith and Perkins out of that and a series of other uh, related conversations really changed the course of American history. As you point out, she becomes first female cabinet secretary under FDR and uh, recent scholarship has finally given her, her due as one of the great architects of New Deal reforms. Um, but in the meantime, you're right, women uh, reformers, they'd always been involved in politics. It would be silly to say that what they were doing, trying to, uh, change local government, trying to call for reforms, lobbying and so forth, wasn't clearly political. It was, but there's a, there's a difference when you cross a new, a new threshold, uh, to partisan politics, right? They had tended to be, and of course there are always exceptions and, and historians have noted some of the women who earlier on had, uh, had been engaged in partisan politics, but in general, uh, these reformist women tended to be um, trying uh, either to uh, be part of nonpartisan movements. They certainly were against the political machines, namely Tammany, but machines all over the the country. And many of them, uh, when they were invited to attend uh, political party conventions, for example. Um, they attended out of interest, but not out of enthusiasm for the parties. After all, uh, women uh, in most of the United States still couldn't vote in the 1910s. Out in the West, uh, many women could. But in New York State, for example, women could not vote until 1917. And nationally, uh, there were many places where it wasn't until 1920. And so... Um, Frances Perkins points out in her memoirs, well, I didn't have to be a member of any party because women didn't have the vote, so it was irrelevant. I was there, I was watching politics because I was interested, uh, but not because I was a partisan. And Lillian Wald went even further, uh, when the Democrats, uh, in 19... 19- 12 solicited her support. Uh, She told them uh, that it would be hypocritical for her as someone who supported women's suffrage to support a party that wasn't willing to do that. Uh, And so as things are changing in the late 1910s, Al Smith had to sort of and some of his allies, but especially Al Smith himself, had to sort of take the lead behind the scenes in convincing these women that partisanship was worthwhile. And you and you brought up his main point, which is being independent might make you feel pure, and it might make you, uh, you know, cleaner than the partisan, especially the machine politicians. But you can get more done when you have a big coalition around you and people who are supporting you uh, politically. And, and that was. Would- was the argument that he made, and, and made successfully with Francis Perkins, and eventually with Lillian Wald as well.
1: You see, situate Al Smith in that respect as you know part of this Tammany machine that produces results, and yet even when he's elected governor, as you explain, he is not able to just push through a progressive agenda in 1919 or 1920 that, in fact, he encounters significant headwinds. I was wondering if you could explain a bit as to what it was he initially sought to do as governor that fits within this progressive mold, and where was the opposition coming from, and, and why were these, why was he facing this opposition?
2: That's a great question. So, when he first came in, uh, the timing was just right for what we would uh, label as a progressive agenda because uh, he took the oath of office January 1919, and we're just coming out of World War One, And World War I had exposed all sorts of public health and housing and other kinds of social welfare crises in New York State and across the country. And so it was potentially an opportunity uh, as governor uh, to have all sorts of reforms growing out of the obvious needs for reform, uh, things like uh, improving um, state um, investments in affordable housing, especially in the metro area, things like improving state investments in public health. Um, there was a large percentage of draft-age men who were simply ineligible to fight because they were physically uh, not up to it uh, in New York State, and this was this was an embarrassment to the state. And so his agenda, they called it the Reconstruction Commission. He brought in all sorts of reformers. Um, the person that he uh, basically had, as uh, in the words of her biographer, the linchpin of this commission um, was Belle Moskowitz, another of these uh, progressive women who became really Smith's foremost advisor. Um, and so she's basically running that. Uh, Reconstruction Commission for Smith, and they came up with all sorts of suggestions sweeping uh, social welfare reforms to New York State, everything from um, compulsory health insurance program for industrial workers to improve improved benefits for, um, widows of industrial accidents and improved workmen's compensation and investment in housing and investment in recreation and, uh, public milk commission to make sure that, uh, healthy clean milk was available and all sorts of other things. Um, and you point out, uh, correctly that his first term was, uh, not fruitful really at all, uh. You ask why, and the main reasons is a couple. Number one, as in the entire time Smith was governor of New York, he did not have Democratic majorities in the state legislature. Occasionally, he would have a Democratic majority in one house or the other, for but uh, there was always at least one Republican house of the legislature, and usually both, throughout the entire four terms of Smith's governorship. Uh, and the other problem uh, was the Red Scare. Uh, it was very easy for conservative opponents of Smith's agenda to um, caricature, for example, compulsory health insurance uh, for industrial workers in New York as Bolshevism, uh, and so things that started uh, to have momentum uh, ended up running into either partisan oppo- opposition or uh, red scare atmospherics, uh, and so and then then uh, in 1920. Uh, he was not reelected, um, and uh, fortunately for him, he was able to make a comeback, but 1920 was a terrible year for Democrats, and he got uh, voted out of office as part of the national um, Harding uh, landslide in 1920.
1: One of the interesting things about his success in returning to office after 1922 is that some politicians might have taken that as a message to perhaps trim their sails toward the controversies. That, that they might have perceived as being the reason why they had lost the previous time. And yet, as you explain, when Smith comes back, he jumps right back into this. And you describe how he pursues these campaigns. He also takes up another one that, for me, was a real revelation, which was his involvement in conservation. It's not something you, you think about with Al Smith and, and his agenda, And yet you talk about this, and I thought it was a nice microcosm of his efforts to both pursue progressive reforms, but also how he had to do so within this existing political structure, which was not always favorable to him.
2: No, that's absolutely right. I, I agree with you that conservation is a fascinating example. First of all, because as you sort of implied with your question, we think of him as this Uh, urban character, and you don't think of conservation as one of his priorities. But in fact, it really is emblematic of his broader notion that you can use the state government um, affirmatively to improve the lives of people, and that could mean um, creating parks and beaches on Long Island uh, that had access to urban populations, but it could also mean Um, protecting larger sections of the Adirondacks uh, from uh, timber cutting or from hydroelectric development Uh, and in his words this was because he had this vision that over generations we're going to need that and this is something the state can do for uh, its people now and in the future and uh, you're also right that he had to use the mechanics of state government uh, very shrewdly in order to accomplish these things Um, the example in conservation of course is how are you going to pay for the land acquisitions? And so he had to go to the people and campaign actively in 1924 to get a bond initiative uh, just to get um, some of these parks. Uh, And when that wasn't enough money in 1925, he had to go uh, for a much larger bond um, and they had to create Um, sort of regional park commissions and over time uh, they were going to uh, realize that this and many other issues uh, were burdening an antiquated structure of the state government so they actually had to streamline and reform the entire structure of New York state government so that you couldn't just it's one thing to have good ideas and even have money for it, but you also want to be, be able to deliver these services, whatever they may be, efficiently. And so all of these things sort of built one after another in his second, third, and fourth terms after his comeback uh, and created this really holistic, uh, progressive agenda for New York State, much, much of which, not all of, not all of it, but much of which he was able to uh, institute over, over that period.
1: Another aspect of it that I thought was very interesting was, and this gets to how the political environment back then was different than it is today, which was his success in reaching out not just to independents, but to Republicans, in particular progressive Republicans. And the name that stood out for me was, of course, Charles Evans Hughes, former governor. He had been a Supreme Court justice. He had in the Republican presidential nominee in 1916, and how he, when he was undertaking that streamlining effort, he reaches out to Hughes and other progressives in the Republican Party, and in effect, does not allow the fact that the Republicans control parts of the process to necessarily serve as an obstacle to getting things done. Yeah, it's
2: a really interesting. Um, it's a really interesting point. My students often um, have trouble deciphering the politics of the early 20th century for the very fact you pointed out. It's so different from today. The two parties um, within themselves had very strong uh, progressive wings in each party and they also had very strong conservative or stand pat uh, wings within the parties uh, and the Republicans in New York are a fascinating example of that many of the uh, nationally inclined New York State Republicans had Progressive inclinations, whether that had been Teddy Roosevelt earlier, or whether it was now Charles Evans Hughes, um, and even the ones who weren't especially progressive still had reformist ideas. So um, Elihu Root uh, is another good example. He was not—he you wouldn't call him a progressive, but he was reformist, and he also had uh, much more national views than local. Whereas the the state party in New York tended to be highly. Uh, from the old guard, very much uh, more of a conservative party. And so Smith was able to use the legacies and ideas and eventually the individuals uh, from the more progressive wing of Republicanism in New York State to his advantage. He was uh, willing to work with these people behind the scenes, and eventually uh, they were able to persuade Hughes. And there was no denying Hughes's uh, Republican bona fides. uh, (laughs) That once he got him on board, uh, then then it really um, was helpful in sort of blunting the Republicans in New York uh, their attempt to um, basically kill his. his streamlining of state government and Hughes did this reluctantly. It's, it's really an interesting story. Um, Root and some of the other, um, Henry Stimson's another one. Uh, some of the other New York Republicans had been working with Smith for a while. But the crown jewel of this fight was getting Hughes involved. And once they brought him in, there was really nothing that the state party could say. Because, as I said, he he, he had been in, and as you pointed out, he had been in every position that you mentioned. You know, he had been governor. He wasn't very popular with Republicans in New York, even when he was governor, it's been argued by one Hughes biographer. The only way he got renominated in 1908 was by uh, Theodore Roosevelt's intervention. Um, his progressivism was obnoxious to a lot of New York Republicans, even during his own term. But he was still this highly credentialed. He had run against Wilson. He had been Harding's uh, Secretary of State. Uh, so there was there was no questioning his resume. And once he got involved, um, it really. Uh, achieved every basically everything that Smith had hoped for as far as uh, making state government much more efficient, um, slightly less expensive, although that never those results never really materialized the way they had hoped. Um, but also just a lot a lot more uh, effective.
0: /nbn50 to get 50% off. To what degree does his progressive advocacy
1: play a role in his emergence as a potential presidential candidate over the course of the 1920s?
2: That's a very important question. I'm glad you asked it that way because again, uh, the the famous story for sort of Smith's turning point to being a national candidate is the 1924 convention. And the 1924 convention at Madison Square Garden is uh, it, it's fraught with all the culture wars issues of the 20s. Um, it's the Southern Democrats against the Northeastern Machine Democrats. It's Smith against um, William Gibbs McAdoo, who, um, as your listeners probably know, had been Wilson's Treasury Secretary and son-in-law and now was a political ally of basically of the the Southern and Western interests and of the Klan, for that matter, uh, and was seen as the presidential front-runner. Um, and so as Smith's emerging as this national figure in 1924, it's on behalf of Northeastern and Midwestern machine Democrats who are trying to stop McAdoo and promote Al Smith as an alternative that represents sort of the new Americans and those who oppose Prohibition and who oppose the Klan. 1924 is also famous because the Democrats are debating uh, whether or not to have a plank in their platform denouncing the Ku Klux Klan by name and shockingly to us today that actually failed. Uh, they weren 't even able to to do that and so for all of those reasons, the traditional answer to your question would be it wasn 't about his progressivism it was because of these culture wars, but actually, uh, even in one thousand nine hundred and twenty four Uh, when Smith was instructing his allies, you know, what should we focus on during this campaign? He talked about his gubernatorial record. And when he gave a speech to the convention, which um, I should mention was held at Madison Square Garden, so he had a a bit of a strategic advantage there, um, he talked about some of the things we've just been talking about, some of these social welfare and administrative reforms in New York State. And then coming out of 1924, and this, I think, is, is a way to answer your question with more nuance. Um, come, after 1924, when the Democrats got rocked all around the country and Coolidge was reelected in a landslide, uh, Al Smith got reelected in New York anyway, even though back then New York leaned Republican. Al Smith got reelected in 24, despite those headwinds. And as he sort of reasserted himself on the national scene, his first major speech after 1924 was out in Chicago, Uh, I think it was in the spring but it was in 1925 and the Cook County Democratic Party turned out 100,000 people Uh, the machines were really good at getting a crowd there (laughs) and he spoke about administrative reform and he spoke about uh, industrial protections and widows' pensions, he did not talk the the newspaper accounts of it sort of uh, remark, he didn't mention uh, his well-known opposition to prohibition, so it wasn't on the cultural issues that he was making that he was pushing himself as a national candidate. It was instead um, on a progressive resume in New York State of which he was very proud. He did the same thing the following year. He went to Philadelphia and he gave a well-received speech. uh, And in this case, it was about uh, using bonds to build hospitals, which he had done successfully in New York State in which he was uh, encouraging Pennsylvanians to do as well. And so he really, it would be, foolish to argue that the cultural issues didn't matter. And and I don't mean to ever suggest that, but those were one side of him. And as as he was emerging as a national candidate, he usually emphasized uh, the, the social welfare and labor reforms and administrative reforms that he had accomplished to a large degree of success in New York State.
1: That actually gets to a point that is not necessarily central to your book, but is an important part of it, which is that to think of these voters in these cities, in particular these these ethnic voters, the uh, Italians, uh, the Poles, and so forth, as being uh, you know automatic Democrats at this point is is a, is a falsehood, and it's the flip side of what you're talking about in terms of how we think about politics back then in the 1920s versus how they how you know, we sometimes perceive them as today is that you're talking about a group that in which their allegiances were fluid you point out uh, later in the book that uh in the 1920s they were voting republican as often as they were democrat chicago the example you cited uh in the 1920s had a had a republican mayor and and so it, it, to simply say that they you know were were drawn to him because he happened to have been from the city because he happened to have had this irish identity uh, is, is 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 you know Question: How their 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 allegiances had to be courted, and that you emphasize how, as you were pointing out, that his advocacy of these reforms, his uh, his pro- his proposal of this progressive agenda is so central to that.
2: Absolutely, and you're it, it is it's not a central part of the my argument, but it is a fundamentally important part of my argument. We can't take for granted that these these voters were going to. Be be or become Democrats. The Democratic Party had done a horrible job of courting them, um, even in the the tail end of the Wilson years. And certainly, I mean, in 1920, you have the famous speech where the Democratic nominee James Cox um, denounced hyphenated Americans. And then in 1924, the Democrats, as I mentioned earlier, couldn't even denounce the Klan by name. The Democrats were still seen largely as the party of of uh, the South and of, uh, to a lesser extent, it's still hanging around, he's still hanging around, Brianism, uh, and things that didn't really appeal to a lot of those new Americans in the factories uh, and uh, in uh, the Northeast and Midwest. And and in fact, um, one of the reasons I spend so much time in New England uh, is because that's where we see some of the most dramatic changes. of French-Canadian uh Workers in New England were um, largely Republican. Uh, Italians were trending Republican by this time. They had been, uh, at at other times, sometimes Democratic. Most of the elite members of these communities um, were uh, Republican more often than not. That went especially for French Canadians, but also uh, Polish voters. Um, The Jewish vote nationally was uh, often sort of down the middle. Uh, it wasn't overwhelmingly one way or another. Um, and, so, and also, you know, workers in general, irrespective of ethnicity, had tended to be Republican since William McKinley. It's the full dinner pail. Um, and so uh, all of those factors uh, and skepticism toward the Democratic Party because of its Uh, rural and southern reputation, Um, skepticism in the Northeast by groups who weren't Irish, the other ethnic groups. The other funny thing is in in New England and in other parts of the Northeast, uh, some of the new immigrant groups actually resented the Irish Uh, more than they resented uh, the native born Protestants because the Irish had dominated the Catholic hierarchy. Uh, This was especially a problem for French Canadians, but also for Italians. Um, And uh, so there, there were sort of uh, rivalries within uh, ethnic Catholic working class America as well. And so all of this was going against the Democrats um, and Smith. Uh, managed to um, really bring a lot of these people together, again, both on cultural and um, the uh, economic uh, levels.
1: So when Smith does uh, get the nomination in nineteen twenty eight, uh, and and he campaigns uh, for the the, the presidency what uh what sort of agenda does he specifically advocate and 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 how does he how how does he present this agenda to whom is he trying to reach out to and 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 how is he trying to make this argument
2: well it is a complicated um point so he wants to he says at his um at his acceptance address in August in Albany, and it's broadcast over the radio, Uh, he's going to maintain contact with the American people throughout this campaign. Uh, And so it's going to be through a series of speeches, um, major addresses in major cities all around the country, which are, of course, uh, at that time reprinted verbatim in almost all the major newspapers around the country and, um, also broadcast over the radio. Um, and so part of it is just, uh, speaking about issues. And what he actually did was he would choose, um, one, two, maybe three major issues to focus on in a given speech. So his first big speech is in, um, Omaha, um, and he speaks about farm relief, which was a big uh, issue in the 1920s. Uh, farmers were suffering terribly throughout the 20s. There was, there was no roaring 20s. Uh, if you were a, a wheat farmer in the Upper Plains, for example, um, and so he he spoke about that, and so he spoke about he spoke about water power. He spoke about the treatment of um, laborers. He spoke about tariff reform. He spoke about making the federal government more efficient the way he had tried to do it uh, in New York State. And yes, he also spoke about some of the more famous cultural issues. He gave uh, a very courageous and very celebrated speech in Oklahoma City, uh, denouncing the Ku Klux Klan and saying, you know, if somebody calls themselves 100% American, uh, that's ridiculous. There's no such thing as somebody who's who's, uh, 100% American. Um, And he did uh, criticize um, prohibition um, and the way that it was being handled. So he did talk about the cultural issues as well. Um, So that was one way that he spread his message. Um, And another way was uh, through constantly referring back to his accomplishments in New York State, both in campaign ads, which appeared in newspapers all over the country. Often in his own um, in his own speeches, he would reference, well, here's how I handled this sort of thing in New York, and uh, it, you didn't have to think too far to make analogies to national issues. And the other thing is he had a lot of... Uh, people speaking on his behalf. Um, His running mate, Joe Robinson, gave a lot of in-depth speeches, especially in the West, uh, and to a lesser extent in the South, uh, and focused on issues about uh, labor and farms and so forth. A lot of those progressive um, social work women that we talked about earlier, um, a lot of Frances Perkins uh, barnstormed the Northeast giving speeches for Al Smith. Uh, Molly Dooson gave a number of speeches. Um, other, A lot of other people did. Lillian Wald, uh, it's actually sort of funny. In Lillian Wald's case, um, she and Jane Addams... Jane Addams, another uh, probably the most famous of the Settlement House uh, women. Um, Jane Addams was actually a Hoover supporter. And so Wald and Jane Addams had a sort of agreement that neither of them would give speeches. Um, but instead, uh, Lillian Wald wrote letters and sent them to uh, Dozens and dozens of social workers all over the country uh, lauding uh, smith 's social welfare record and calling him the person who 's done more than any pers- any other man in the history of New York uh, to improve uh, the lives of of workers and so forth and so uh, there were a lot of ways of spreading that message um, and it really did it really did take i 'm um, sure we 'll talk about it later, but the the idea that the individual voters who were trying to get to know and, and understand why they why they vote the way they vote, uh, there's a good bit of evidence that they were actually responsive to that message. And so um, he hit all of his... And, and I'll just say one other thing. Uh, this is how he had always operated. In New York State, he took some of these issues. For example, we were talking before about um, administrative reform. That sounds very arcane and technocratic and boring right and and most voters don't want to hear but he was able to make it um, popular and understandable and that was his political style he would take these big issues uh, boil them down into terms that the average voter could understand but without being condescending about it and so turn these These reforms into people's initiatives, and he took the same approach. With obviously, he wasn't elected, so with less success, but the same approach nationally, um, and people were starting to respond, as I try to demonstrate in in the book.
1: Because I I was uh, thinking, as you're describing that, it's you know you would think it was it was difficult to appreciate the impact. Uh, At first, because when the votes were all counted, it was a a landslide for Herbert Hoover in 1928. Not only did uh, the Democrats, you know, lose in the West and they lost in the Midwest and they, I mean, Al Smith even lost New York State in, in in the election, but the Republicans even made inroads in the South. They, they won Virginia, they won Texas, they won Florida, and, and so on the face of it, it, seemed as though that Smith had failed in the sense of he, he for for you know whatever reason you choose, either because he was too New York, because he was Catholic, because of his progressive agenda, and yet as you explain that you know, when you d- parse into uh, these communities in the north what in the northeast that there there was this almost this catalyzation taking effect among the voters in 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 those areas that we can perhaps see uh we we crash this trap out to happening elsewhere throughout America in the 1920s into the 1930s
2: Absolutely. And you really picked up on what I think is, is the most important point here. And, and you know, to to go back to his, his losing, there are so many, all the reasons you mentioned are right for why he loses, right? The fact that he's a Catholic really did hurt him in places like the upper Midwest where farmers were suffering, but they still didn't vote to change the status quo. Places like the South, where, as you pointed out, he's the first Democrat ever, uh, to lose Texas, um, the first Democrats since Reconstruction, to lose places like uh, Virginia and Florida and, and so forth. Um, and so, uh, and, and even the states in the South that he did win, a lot of them were a lot closer than they normally would have been. Um, but in the Northeast especially, and in urban America, the urban industrial America in general, um, but especially in, in in new england um you see voters not only does he win rhode island he's the first democrat to take a majority wilson had gotten a plurality but he's the first democrat to get a majority in rhode island since franklin pierce so that's a long time (laughs) um and he wins massachusetts um he makes things closer in other northeastern states ironically including new york um although it wasn't enough to have him win um in his home state um and we can Talk about why in a moment, if you want, but but that that was a crushing blow to him. But but in any case, um, the voters in those places, um, especially in industrial communities in the Northeast. Um, they were responsive to his cultural message. They had always felt that they had been um, ethnically marginalized, religiously marginalized, both Catholic and Jewish voters felt that way. Um, and so his denunciations of the Klan and of snobbishness and of uh, bigotry really meant a great deal to them. Um, however, that if that got their attention, and it surely did, um, what they also were hungering for by 1928 uh, is a way to uh, improve their day-to-day lives. And that meant things like the kinds of labor protections he had pursued in New York State, um, taking those ideas uh, onto a national level, or it would mean um, things like uh, the... uh, housing uh, was uh, pretty uh, ramshackle in a lot of these communities or uh, child uh, infant mortality rates were uh, incredibly high in a lot of these communities. Um, And, um, you know, he had, there are a lot of other issues. He had done things to deal with with all of those issues in New York state. And he was talking about them again. Unfortunately uh, for us, um, there wasn't occasion for him to go into a lot of specifics on uh, how these things translated nationally, except that the idea that the, the approach and the governing philosophy translated nationally had been made clear. A lot of his surrogates were a lot more A lot more uh, clear. Uh, People like Francis Perkins, people like uh, Mary Norton, a congresswoman from New Jersey who spoke on his behalf, they went into a lot more detail about the things he had done in uh, New York and what might be expected uh, on a national level. And so what happened, uh, in short, is that uh, these workers uh, responded to Smith uh, and formed a new, and it turned out to be a very durable, political coalition Responsive to uh, his sort of three pronged progressive campaign. And the three prongs are uh, pluralism, uh, but also social welfare and labor protections. All three of those things were very meaningful. Uh, to the voters that ended up becoming Smith Democrats and staying in the Democratic Party moving forward. Uh, And that's why that goes back to to the the very first question you asked about political history. Um, That's why you have to understand uh, these voters' lives holistically. You can't just say, here's how they voted this year and look at some numbers and say, oh, they were Catholic, they were this, they were that. Um, You have to Try and dig into what their lives were like uh, and see what they themselves were saying to the extent that those uh, are, those uh, sources are available, and, and a lot of them uh, you can find in letters to the editor and things like that um, and, you, and and what you find uh, is that, uh, as you said, they really were galvanized as Democrats at that time. And and it, and it, it makes the election, despite the map being uh, sort of overwhelmingly red, uh, it makes the election a lot more important in, in the long run.
1: There's an aspect of your argument in your book, though, that it's also important to to, uh, illicit, to highlight, which is the fact that you, appro- you make this argument with a degree of nuance because you have some historians in the past who have read into al smith 1928 and what he has done as sort of uh as sort of the first draft of the new deal and as you point out that yeah. that that that's uh, that's a bit of an overstatement in that respect that uh he's is that we have to read it in in a more uh in a more cautious light in that respect but it's one that i, I thought was a very interesting point to make because it it, it gives a sense of proportion, in effect, in that Al Smith's not doing this with an anticipation of what's going to be needed during the New Deal, although Franklin Roosevelt does give him due credit for, for pioneering a lot of the things that he would then take and run with uh, when he becomes president at, in uh, 1933.
2: Yeah, it's exactly right. Um, there's a tendency to do one of two things with Al Smith. Um, either look at the fact that he had been pursuing... Um, social welfare initiatives in New York State and labor reforms in New York State and then look later on that his 1920s era ally FDR is doing those things at a national level and say oh well you see he's the father of the New Deal and that's that really is going too far what Smith was doing in New York was in the context of uh, the problems that New York was facing, this is what a good governor is, is trying to do he 's trying to deal with uh, his his society 's problems um, he wasn 't facing the Great Depression, but what he was facing both in New York State and nationally, um, and this is why you know when we talk about life in industrial New England or in other communities, uh, what he was facing was a lot of people who were suffering in the meantime, and so it might not have been these sort of sweeping calls for uh, the kind of reforms we see in the New Deal, but it was responding to the kinds of problems that were going to become even more gargantuan in scale and even more troubling for even more people once the depression hit and once FDR had to deal with them uh, in the New Deal era. And so there are things that are, uh, in, in one historian's words, akin uh, to what would happen <laughs> in the New Deal. Um, but the other, the other, I mean, the other poll is there are a lot of historians who look at what Al Smith is doing and they call him a conservative uh, in the 1920s. And uh, I think there they're reading it backwards through the prism of the New Deal, and they're saying, well, since it's not New Deal liberalism, it must be sort of conservative. And, and that's uh, expecting too much. I mean, in the 1920s, despite everything that I point out in the book about the, the communities that did vote for Smith, there was a general feeling. Um, we now know they were wrong, but there was a general feeling that the economy uh, was working and that uh, this was a time of uh, Hoover prosperity. And so for a mainstream uh, political candidate, uh, to expect them to be sort of calling for this fundamental overhaul of the political economy, um, that, that seems a little bit ahistorical as well. So the word nuance that you use is, is exactly right. You have to, you have to understand these things in their own context. You have to understand that world um, of the voters, of the politicians um in its in its in all of its nuance and all of its complexity, and then you can understand what was going on and how it did indeed help set in motion uh, some of the political coalitions and dynamics that would help fuel and shape uh, the New Deal once the New Deal was happening. Um, but I agree with you that um, it's important to point out that I'm not, as others have saying, Al Smith gave us the New Deal because I, I think that's 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 way too far.
1: I was thinking also about how the, the, how Smith himself ends up, you know, complicating that argument, given how he, you know, by the early 1930s, he becomes associated with the Liberty League. He starts to yeah. denounce Franklin Roosevelt. And, and he really seems to be at pains to... You know, in effect, feed into that argument that that concert that the, the some of those more uh, those historians you point out who you know play up the idea of Smith is conservative because Smith, if he is a father of the New Deal, certainly wants you know wants to disown his child. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a
2: good way of putting it. Um, yeah, it it makes things. I mean, it, it makes it a little tricky. Um, what I often tell people, um, irrespective of one's own political leanings. If you read this story, it does have kind of a sad ending. And um, the point is that I believe, and I think I should demonstrate in the book, that by by that time, by 1934-35, when he's with the Liberty League giving uh, some of these speeches, when he's voting uh, Republican uh, in 1936, he has changed. Um, there are those who say, well, he was always conservative. This is consistent with his uh, his earlier career. That just doesn't hold up in the face of uh, the analysis of his time as governor. Um, it doesn't hold up uh, when you consider some of the things he pushed for as governor. And even uh, as a presidential nominee, he's not as aggressive as a presidential nominee because the nature of the Constitution, does, in his view, and a lot of people, doesn't necessarily uh, allow that certainly in in the 1920s, um, and nor do economic conditions. Uh, but it is clear once you've gone through the whole story that I lay out, uh, he has clearly changed in the 1930s when uh, he is giving these Liberty League speeches. And in fact, um, it's a sort of uh, sad, uh, ironic moment. Uh, he gives a speech for the Liberty League uh, denouncing. Um, FDR's uh, programs as communistic. Uh, and the next day, Harold A. was able to quote uh, an Al Smith speech from 1928 to repudiate what Al Smith had said uh, in the 1930s. Um, and it does sort of, sort of demonstrate how much he had changed. And And I think what's even more significant, because it's not a Smith biography, and I I should point that out. I mean, he's the central character, obviously, but it's not a biography of Al Smith. Um, What's even more significant about that change is that all of those voters who came into the Democratic Party because of Al Smith in 1928, um, they didn't then leave the Democratic Party Because of him joining the Liberty League Or him uh, supporting Alf Landon In 36, they became even More democratic as the New Deal Went on because the New Deal on the Federal level was expressing um, Or or, or, uh, It was responding To the kinds of needs that they had expressed By supporting Smith back in 28 And so they became even more Democratic rather than less despite What Smith had done. So the sad thing Is that even though uh, He was, if not a father of the New Deal. You certainly have a father of the New Deal coalition. Uh, The coalition went on without him.
1: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, In some ways, um, it's kind of a, uh, I guess you could say it's sort of a thematic sequel to the uh, Revolution of 28. Uh, My current book Um, is about a congresswoman uh, from New Jersey. I mentioned her a moment ago, Mary Teresa Norton. Um, It covers a lot of the same themes as the Revolution of 28, the intersection of class and labor and ethnicity. Um, But uh, it also uh, focuses a lot more on uh, questions of gender. Mary Norton um, was, um, like Smith, an uh, Irish Catholic uh, machine politician. Instead of being from Tammany, she was from the... If there's any machine even more notorious than Tammany, it might be in Jersey City uh, with the Hague machine, and so she's part of that operation. But she was a daughter of Irish immigrants. Um, she, what's interesting about Norton is unlike uh, a lot of the women we were talking about earlier who became progressive reformers and went into the working class cities to help people out of very humane inclinations, Mary Teresa Norton came from within that world. Uh, She was a daughter of working class immigrants. She lost her only child as an infant and uh, went into social work sort of to pull herself out of the depression she went into. And through that social work, she then, uh, became associated uh, with city government and with the Hague machine. And by 1924, she was elected to Congress. Um, The reason I think she's so fascinating uh, is, number one, she pushes a lot of the same agenda I talk about with Smith, Um, in Congress. And she's there throughout the New Deals and into the 40s uh, and through the 40s. And she was the chair of the House Labor Committee when they got the Fair Labor Standards Act passed in 1938. And she was uh, fundamentally important to even getting that to a vote, uh, let alone passed. Um, And so she uh, gives us a lot of insight into the development of sort of mid-20th century American liberalism uh, in the aftermath of Smith's loss in 28. And so that's, that's I'm, as you can probably tell, I'm knee-deep in that project now. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I've, I've done a little bit of writing, and so uh, hopefully it won't be uh, too many uh, years before people can have a look at that as well.
1: Well, I hope when it does come out, we have an opportunity to bring you back to uh, feature the book in a future podcast. So that would be great. Rob, Charles, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
2: Thanks, you too.